Good morning. <laughs> um, it, is, it is truly a blessing and an honor to once again have the opportunity to, to preach to you all this morning. Um, it, I'm just very thankful that, that I have a church and a, a, a body of believers that, that has been such an encouragement to me uh, ever since I've, I've been here. And I'm, I'm excited, and I'm especially excited to be preaching from one of my favorite books of the Bible, and that's the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews, for me in my Christian walk, has been a source of much encouragement. It's, it's brought much joy to my heart as it magnifies Christ. And as we'll see this morning, one of the, one of the purposes and one of the goals in the book of Hebrews is to encourage, to exhort, and to, to edify the readers and the listeners. And as such, the goal of my sermon this morning is also to encourage, to exhort, and to edify you all through seeing the majesty and the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Continuously seeing the attributes, these attributes of our Savior, Jesus Christ, is an incredibly important aspect of our Christian lives. We see the effects of this even in evangelism. And I'm sure we've heard preachers and, and evangelists who preach nothing but, but fire and, and brimstone and hell and damnation for those who don't repent and don't put their faith in Jesus Christ. And while these, this is certainly true, and we never want to dull the hard points of the gospel, because there are certainly ways in which God uses to draw people to repentance. Yet this isn't the whole of evangelism, nor is it the whole of our Christian lives. You see, we're not here this morning simply because we're terrified of what would happen to us if we weren't. We're gathered here this morning to, to worship our Savior because we know how great it is to be in relationship with Him. We who have been reconciled realize and recognize how much better it is to know Christ and to commune with Him than anything else that the world has to offer. And so we gather to celebrate that. We gather to worship Him and bring the glory and honor that His name deserves. And so, while even throughout the book of Hebrews, we're reminded over and over of the negative ramifications and the negative impacts of not putting faith in Christ, we're also pointed to the very positive side and the positive light of who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. And the book of Hebrews was, was written to do just this, to magnify Christ, to show us how much better Christ is than anything that the world has to offer. There's nothing greater. Christ is always better. Now, before we dive straight into our text, uh, we, as always, especially with a one-off sermon like this, need to discuss the, the context to, to guide and, and safeguard our interpretation of, of God's Word. The book of Hebrews was written in the first century, uh, somewhere around 63 to 69 A.D. Some smarter people than I figured that out. Um, the author of the book of Hebrews is the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, uh, see, we don't know who the human author is of the book of Hebrews, but um, in, in all truth and honesty, that's probably for the best. Because since the point of the book of Hebrews is to magnify Christ, who, who else to look to? Who better to look to as the author than the Holy Spirit? Um, the, the audience of the book of Hebrews, which is arguably the most important point of context for this book, 
was a group of Jewish believers, and, and it was written to Jews in the first century church. And this is important to keep in mind as you read through the book of Hebrews, because many of the truths that we'll read about are very Old Testament-centered. And so to understand much of the truth that we'll read about in the book of Hebrews, you have to have a good understanding, or at least a good grasp, on the truths revealed in the Old Testament, and, and even the stories and the history of the Old Testament. And so that's why we read all of Leviticus 16 this morning. <laughs> it's really long, but it was not because I was stalling. It was because it's important to know. So, <laughs> um, and, and the other very important and, and the final important piece of context when approaching the book of Hebrews is the condition of the Jews in the first century church. The condition of Jewish believers in the first century church. This is incredibly important to keep in mind because, because it's why the book of Hebrews was written. Needless to say, these early Jewish believers, they, they had it rough. They did not have it easy. During this time for a Jew to confess faith in Jesus Christ, to confess that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, it was, it was cultural suicide. These Jews would face ostracism in, in, their, in their work, in their communities, and even in their families. From the Jewish non-Christian perspective, these Jewish converts, these Jewish believers, were looked at as heretics, blasphemers, and they were even looked at as worse than the Gentiles. And so this, these Jews had to suffer this ostracism and this, this, this suffering from even their closest friends and families who they, who they loved dearly. And in addition to this, these early Jewish believers, they had to learn how to cast off everything that they knew about right worship. He had to cast off all of his tradition, all of his background and upbringing to follow Christ. He could no longer participate in the old ways of worship, going to the temple as he had always known. He had, to, he had to give that up for the sake of Christ. And this reality was, it was really difficult. It was very hard for these, many of these early Jewish believers to contend with. And it would cause them to ask the question, is, is this really worth it? Is it really worth it to put to give up everything that I know, to endure this much suffering, even from friends and family, all for the sake of Christ, to follow Him with everything that I have and, and to suffer through all this persecution, could it really be worth it? And the book of Hebrews is written to these Jews. It was written to these Jews to encourage them, to, to, to remind them, to show them that the faith that they had placed in Christ as the Messiah, was not misplaced. They had put faith in the one true God. And so I want you, as much as you can, to keep all of that context in mind as we, as we approach our text this morning. And we're going to be reading from Hebrews 4, starting in verse 14 through 16. So if you'll turn though with me. starting in verse 14. <clears throat> Since then we have a great high priest 
who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Beautiful, wonderful, encouraging passage of Scripture. Up to this point in the book, the author of Hebrews has been establishing this argument for the supremacy of Christ. He's been been showing how, how Christ has the authority given unto him greater than the angels and, and, and all the above. And up into chapter 3 and chapter 4, the author has been pleading with these Jews to not be like their ancestors who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years simply because they would not put their trust in what God had told them and what God had offered them. They didn't enter into the rest in which was so freely offered to them because they didn't believe God. And so the author is pleading with them, don't let that happen again. Put your faith in Christ. Trust in God and enter into the rest that's freely offered to you. And he ends this argument and he tops it off by by stating these two verses, three verses, excuse me. He pleads to to something as, as their great high priest. He says, since then, we have a great high priest. Let us hold fast to our confession. Now, to, to truly understand what the author is, is appealing to in these, in these Jewish believers, we have to first understand who the high priest was and why this would be an appealing argument to Jews. And not only this, we need to understand why he's calling Jesus the great high priest. This is a title not given to any of the high priests in the Old Testament. And so why, why is Jesus the, this great high priest? Well, to understand this, we need to, we need to look back at the, the high priest of the, of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, to understand what makes Christ a greater high priest, what makes Christ better than this Old Covenant. And again, as we read from Leviticus 16 this morning, the high priest of the Old Testament had an incredibly important job. Once a year, on the Day of Atonement, or Yom Kippur, this high priest would enter into the tent or the temple, go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies, where the glory of God dwelled, to make atonement to cover up the sins of Israel. This high priest had the highest honor, this very important job of of representing this wicked, sinful people to this holy and righteous judge. And as, the, as every priest, his job was to take this wicked, sinful people and bring them to God. He represented this people to God and God to this people. And this massive responsibility was placed on his shoulders as once a year he would go behind the veil, enter into the Holy of Holies, where we, as we read this morning, the glory of God dwelled to offer up a sacrifice for the atonement, for the covering of sins for the people of Israel. Unfortunately, the system was insufficient. It was, it was flawed, per se. Not because of, not because of God, but because of, of sinful man. 
this high priest who was supposed to mediate between this sinful people and this holy God, was he himself a part of this sinful people? He was under the same curse of death that this sinful people were. And so this high priest, he, he couldn't perfectly mediate between this holy God and this sinful people because he himself was a sinner. He wasn't separate from the, the sins of this wicked nation which he was going in to offer up atonement for. And so, as such, before this high priest could go before the holies, the, into the Holy of Holies, go before the glory of God, he had to offer up a sacrifice for his own sins first. Before he could enter behind the veil in fear of being struck down by the sheer holiness of God, he had to make a sacrifice to cover up his own sins. And so this priest would do this. He would, he would sacrifice a, a bull and a goat for his own sins, and then he would enter in the, behind the veil to make atonement for the sins of Israel. And because of this, this high priest, he wasn't allowed to stay behind the veil for very long. He had to get in and get out as quickly as possible in fear of sinning and somehow blaspheming the holy place of God and again being struck down by the sheer glory of God. And in addition to this, not only did this high priest have to offer up a sacrifice for his own sins, but the, the sacrifice that he offered up for the atonement of the sins of Israel, it was from a, it was from a bull and a goat. And this, this sacrifice from this bull and this goat could never really atone for the sins of Israel. In Hebrews 10.14, we see that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. And so what, what, did, this, what did this blood do? Well, this blood, all it really did was temporarily cover up the sins of this wicked people. And in temporarily covering up the sins, this high priest would avert the wrath of God from destroying this wicked and sinful nation. And so while this blood was, was necessary, it couldn't have a lasting impact on these Israelites, on this wicked, sinful people. It could never get to the root of the matter. It couldn't go in and cleanse the conscience of these Israelites, but it could only ever really cover up their sins temporarily. It couldn't be effectual unto their salvation. And since this was the case, this offering had to be made year by year. Every single year, this high priest would have to enter into the, enter into the, the Holy of Holies behind the veil to yet again offer up a sacrifice on behalf of this sinful people. And this signifies yet again that, that this system was incomplete because if it truly worked, if it truly did something, it wouldn't have to be offered over and over. And, and finally, to top it all off, this high priest would eventually die. What was necessary for him to continuously mediate between this wicked people and this holy God because these sacrifices had to be done over and over. 
he couldn't truly do because he would, he would die. Like we said earlier, he himself was under the same curse of death as this wicked, sinful nation. And so this high priest, while he was dubbed the high priest, wasn't a very, wasn't a very great high priest. And so ultimately what we see from Leviticus 16, what we see from all of Leviticus is, is that ultimately this sacrificial system was a reminder of their sin. It showed the inability of this sinful, wicked people to ever bring themselves, reconcile themselves to this holy and righteous God. They couldn't do it. They were under a curse. And this, this sacrificial system, it, it showed the necessity of a sacrifice for sins. It showed the necessity of blood to be shed for sins. And, and finally, it was to show that this, this covering of sins, this, this sacrificial system was, was temporary. Something greater and better would be necessary to ever completely and effectually atone for the sins of this wicked people to get to the heart of the matter. And so then, what makes Jesus a great high priest? What makes Jesus a better high priest than these Old Testament high priests? In every single way that this high priest of the Old Testament fell short, Jesus Christ did not. In every area of his life where this high priest of the Old Covenant would fail, Jesus Christ succeeded. See, Jesus Christ was not under that same curse of death that this sinful nation was because Jesus Christ was perfect in every way. We read in verse 15, yet without sin, Jesus Christ had no sin to atone for before approaching the holy of holies of God. He didn't have to make a sacrifice for his own sins first because he was separate from these sinners, holy, righteous, and perfect. Hebrews 7, 26 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. Jesus Christ was was perfect. And being this perfect high priest, he had the ability to actually mediate between this wicked, sinful nation, this wicked, sinful people, and this holy and righteous judge. And in addition to not needing to make a sacrifice for his own sins, the sacrifice that Jesus offered was efficacious, meaning it did something. It worked. For the first time, a sacrifice was offered that didn't simply cover up sins. A sacrifice was offered that got to the root of the matter. It got to the heart of those who would put their faith in it, who would believe in it, who it, who it was given for. And it cleansed the conscience of those whom this blood was offered for, for all time. Because the blood that Jesus offered, it didn't come from a bull or a goat. 
The blood that Jesus offered was his own blood. The blood of this unstained, perfect, separate from sinners, holy high priest. He didn't simply come to mediate, but he came to offer up his own life on behalf of those who would put their faith in his name. See, Jesus Christ, he came and perfectly lived the life that we could never live. He lived the perfect life and was the perfect high priest that these high priests of the Old Testament could never be. And after living this perfect life, Jesus Christ looked ahead to the pain, the anguish, and the suffering of the cross that he would have to endure to make this possible. And he chose to do it anyways. See, the blood of this high priest, holy and unstained, it was freely given. Freely given to those who would, who would trust in his name, who would believe that he was the Messiah. And because this blood was so perfect, and because this blood was holy, unstained, separated from sinners, it perfected for all time those who were being sanctified. The blood of this high priest truly got to the hearts of these wicked sinners and cleansed them of their conscience of sin. And so this people could finally be brought to God because they were fully and completely atoned for, for all time, made righteous. Because this blood that Jesus offered was, and the, the, the righteousness of Christ through the offering of his own blood was imputed to us. This high priest gave his blood that we could become the righteousness of God. And as such, our sins were imputed to him. And he suffered, he bled, and he died in our place so that we could be brought before this, this holy, righteous judge and no longer look at him as a judge, but see him as a, as a father. And, and in, a, in addition to this, in addition to Christ being perfect, in addition to Christ offering up a perfect sacrifice, we read in, in verse 14 that, that he passed through the heavens. You see, Jesus Christ, upon dying the death, the painful death on the cross, he rose three days later and he ascended to the right hand of the throne of God. He didn't offer up his sacrifice in a tent made with hands on earth. He offered up his sacrifice in the holiest of all holies, not simply where the glory of God dwelled, but where God the Father truly dwelled. And once he had done this, he sat down in the holy of holies at the right hand of his Father. If you remember, the, the high priest of the Old Covenant, he had to get in and get out as quickly as possible in case he, he died. Jesus Christ, he didn't have to leave. He stayed and he sat down signifying that his work was finished. There was nothing else that had to be done for sinful men to be reconciled to this holy God. Jesus Christ did it all, and his work on earth was finished at his crucifixion. We who have become the righteousness of God 
have been brought near to him and no longer need to work for our own salvation. Our righteousness has been imputed to us because our sins were imputed to Christ. And then finally, Jesus Christ, unlike the high priest of the Old, Test, uh, Old Covenant, can never die. After sitting down at the right hand of the Father, signifying the work was finished, no more sacrifice would need to be made. Year after year was done. We know that, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, when he rose from the grave, he defeated death. And for those whom his blood was poured out for, we also have overcome death because of the way that Christ paid for us. He defeated death. And so we no longer look to it as an enemy, but we say, Oh, death, where is your sting? And Jesus Christ, sitting at the right hand of his Father, ever lives and pleads for us. See, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. Whom we can go to and know with certainty that our sins have fully been forgiven. Because we have a great high priest. We have a high priest who is unlike this high priest of the Old Covenant who, who failed at, at, at every turn. We have a high priest who succeeded in every way and paved that perfect path for us that we would become the righteousness of God. So praise God that we have such a great high priest. And, and this, is, this is what the author of Hebrews is, is appealing to. This is what the author of Hebrews is, is telling these Jews He's telling them, look, guys, you don't have to go to this high priest who offers up a sacrifice year after year. You have offered to you a great high priest who has finished the work. These sacrifices are no longer necessary. Jesus Christ has once and for all atoned for sins perfectly. Why would you go back to this old, bloody sacrifice? You have offered to you a high priest whom you can put your faith in and fully and wholly be reconciled to this God. Don't be like your ancestors who didn't believe, who didn't enter into the rest that was so freely offered to them. Put your faith in Christ wholly and utterly and live your life for him. It's so much better than this old covenant. This is the only way. And, and not only this, the, the author doesn't stop here. He goes on to, to say in verse 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, in addition to, to Jesus being this perfect high priest, offering a better sacrifice, he is also our intimate, sympathetic, and understanding Savior. The, the author does a great job of setting this up in verse 14 when he, when he calls Jesus. He, he calls him by his, his human name, Jesus, and then his divine position, the Son of God. He doesn't say Jesus Christ or 
Christ Jesus. He calls him by his human name, Jesus, and then alludes to his divine position being the Son of God. And this is because Jesus was truly human. He was fully human. The word for weakness here is is to be understood as feebleness or, or frailties. See, Jesus Christ entered into our brokenness. He entered into our feebleness and weakness when he fully became a man at his condescension. Jesus Christ walked. He felt what it was like to breathe. He felt what it was like to drink, to be thirsty, to eat, to be hungry, to grow tired, to grow weary. And in addition to all this, Jesus Christ also felt temptation. And this aspect of of the life of Jesus Christ highlights his humanity more than, than any other aspect. Along with the feelings of hunger that he felt, he also suffered through the hardship of temptation. And yet at the end of verse 15 we see, yet without sin. Jesus Christ suffered through temptation, but yet he prevailed in every way. In every area where where sinful man has given in and fallen short and, and given in to the things of the world and temptation, Jesus Christ didn't. He succeeded at every turn. And this aspect, realizing this truth about Jesus, should bring us much, much hope in our fight against temptation. I'm sure we've all, at some point or another, felt the the kind of disheartening experience of of going to someone, approaching someone with a problem, and, and them not understanding or not having gone through that same problem. And that can... It can be disheartening. They can try to sympathize, but yet they, they don't truly understand. But yet on the floor, I'm sure we've all approached someone with a, with a problem, and they've, they know they've been there. And so they can really sympathize with you. They can give you advice and help in, in a way that, that you, you need and you, you want. And the, the Holy Spirit in verse 15 is making the point to us here. That this is what we have in Jesus Christ. He experienced the suffering and temptation that comes, the suffering and uh, persecution that comes along with temptation. Yet he didn't fail like we do. He prevailed over temptation at every turn. And at this point, it it can be easily glossed over and, and kind of put to the side, but. But it is incredibly important for us to remember is it, it, it gives us so much hope. The, the author of Hebrews in, in chapter 2, verse 17, has already, already established this point when he says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who were being tempted. And, and some may say, well, yeah, you know, Jesus was tempted, but he was perfect. He doesn't really understand what it's like to, to suffer from, from sin. And, and that's absolutely true. 
Jesus never felt what it was like to feel the shame of falling into sin. But that's because what Jesus suffered through was so much worse than we can ever imagine. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I thought this was incredibly helpful. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you only find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by lying down. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside of us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. You see, not only does Jesus know what temptation is, but he knows the extent of temptation, the extent of suffering through temptation to a far greater extent than you and I will ever know, ever experience. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus looked ahead to the cross, he sweat droplets of blood. You and I have never suffered to the point of bloodshed in our struggle against sin. Jesus Christ looked forward to the price that he was going to have to pay to accomplish the will of his Father to the full cup of wrath that was set aside for us that he was going to have to drink all the way down to the dregs. He looked ahead and saw that he was going to have to suffer separation from his Father on our behalf. And he chose anyway to be made perfect through obedience to follow through with the will of his Father. What did he say? Not my will, but yours be done. And because of this, we have... We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. We're not talking about a high priest who has some intellectual understanding of of suffering through temptation. But we have a high priest who has an experiential knowledge and understanding of what it means to suffer through temptation and to come through on the other side successful. And, And this is... This is really countercultural to our idea of sympathy and what we think of when we think of sympathy. We, for some reason, have this idea that people can only sympathize with us if they've failed in the same ways that we have. Like, I'm sure y'all remember back in high school or any other grade when you received your test scores back and they weren't looking so hot, the first thing that you would do is go and see who else failed. Because for some reason, if you can find enough people who've also failed, it makes it okay that you also failed, right? But th- this, this, isn't, this isn't sympathy, and that's not what we have in our great high priest Jesus. You see, sympathy can only come from someone who has succeeded in some place that we've failed. The easiest way to put it is, would you rather go to someone with your problems who has failed in the same ways that you have? Or would you rather go to someone who has succeeded where you failed and can help you through? And the obvious answer is to go to the person who succeeded where you failed. What, what can the person who also failed do for you? Not, they, can, they can just say, yeah, man, me too. And that's, 
that doesn't and can never justify our sins. It, it's not the way it works. And it's just so important to understand this because Jesus Christ, he knows what it means to suffer. And because of that, we can go to him with our sufferings, with our trials, with our temptations, and we know that we will approach him and that he will hear us because he's been there and he's succeeded. And such an intimate knowledge of this temptation and suffering allows Christ to provide for us perfectly. 1 Corinthians 10.12 says, Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. How does He provide the way of escape? Because he blazed the trail of the way of escape. Jesus Christ, every place that, that he was tempted, perfectly and fully made it to the other side successfully. He walked the path before us that we can go to him and ask him, which way do I turn? Where do I go? And he can show us because he's been there too and he made it through the other side without sin. He knows our temptations and we have it as a sure promise that he can lead us out of it. I mean, that's such a hope. What a confidence we have in, in, in our high priest. What a great high priest we have. <laughs> and finally, the, the author of Hebrews, he, he goes on in verse 16, and he says, Let us then with confidence... Draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, from the, from the basis of these two glorious truths, right? Jesus Christ as our great high priest who has perfectly and fully made atonement for us and Jesus Christ as our sympathetic high priest who understands our weaknesses, from the basis of these two glorious truths, the author then pleads and entreats the readers and the listeners to then to draw near to this throne of grace. See, what this high priest has done is this, this, throne, of great, this throne of grace is no longer a throne of judgment for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. It is, in fact, a throne of grace And as such, we can, with confidence, draw near to this throne, knowing that we will not be turned away. We will not be cast away. Why? Because our high priest, Jesus Christ, who has perfectly accomplished our salvation for us, is seated at the right hand of his Father and pleads for us on our behalf. Because we have been, by his work, made sons. And so when we approach the throne of God, we don't approach it with trembling and fear, but we approach it and we cry, Abba, Father, because of what Jesus Christ has done. We have become fellow heirs with him. The word here for confidence, very, very interestingly, has a, a long documented context in the Greek, which denotes... Um, 
free and open speech of citizens with one another. So free and open speech with citizens, not, not, be, not between a monarch and a citizen, but between two citizens. So the confidence that, that the author is alluding to here is the same confidence that I have to approach, to approach Ryan and talk to him. I don't think about that. When I go to talk to Ryan, I don't, I don't first weigh the options. Do I have the, the authority to talk to him? He's my brother, and I can go and freely speak with him. And this is the same confidence that we have to approach the throne of God because the work that Jesus Christ has accomplished has made this relationship in that manner that we can go and freely speak to him, freely speak to him in the same way that we would speak to one another. And yet again, this would be such a like, groundbreaking, earth-shattering truth to the, to the Jews in this time. If, if you have any experience with the Old Testament, you know that you don't approach God. You don't, with any presumed authority, approach the throne of God, the Holy of Holies, whatever it may be. You don't even say his name. You, you just don't do that. But yet, what this author is telling these Jews is, but now you do. Not because of your own authority, but because of the authority of Christ, what he has done and what he has accomplished on your behalf. You can now go to the throne of God and speak with him freely. You, you won't be turned away. It can be done with confidence because our mediator has made the way. He has, he has blazed the trail for us to approach the throne of God with boldness. And, and certainly one of, the, one of the primary ways in which we, uh, especially as Christians, draw near to the throne of grace and we, the way in which we receive mercy and, and grace to help is through prayer. See, the author of Hebrews makes a very important connection here to, to receiving both mercy and grace. See, we as, we as believers have has once already approached the throne of God and received mercy for all of our sins. Yet there is a continual act of approaching the throne of God that we do on a daily basis. See, when, when we were reminded to continuously approach the throne of God, that we would receive mercy. See, when we, when we sin, when we fall short, in our daily lives, when we give in to the temptation which we are told to fight against. We still, with confidence, can draw near to the throne of God in repentance with a confident heart that we will receive mercy for our sins. Because, because since Christ is our great high priest, 
we can receive mercy for all of our sins. In, in 1 John 2.1, John says, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So we are called at multiple, multiple times throughout the Bible to approach the throne of God in, in the event of sin and repentance to receive mercy from these sins. And, and this, this access that we have through prayer is, is the, same, the same free and open access that I was speaking of before. And to not take advantage of this grace given to us by God would be incredibly unwise. In fact, we're told multiple times that you need to be doing this. You need to be praying. See, because when we neglect praying, we deprive ourselves of a grace that God has given to us. See, when we are struggling with temptation, we are called to go to God in prayer and ask for help. And we can, and we need to. When, the, when times of trial rise, when individual times of temptation and struggling come our way, we are called to approach the throne of God with grace and to pray and ask for mercy, for help to make it through this trial and the suffering of temptation. And, and we have to remember this. This is so important for our individual lives and so important for, for greater things and greater temptations, trials, and sufferings that will come our way. In a world that's becoming increasingly, seemingly hostile towards Christians, in a world where many churches are seemingly becoming hostile towards Christians, We need hope because when times of trials arise, we need to know that it is worth it to cling to Christ than to give in and shrink back from Him. When we are called to bear our weighty cross, we are called to cling to Christ, knowing that the suffering that we will endure is worth it. Whether it be those individual daily temptations, those individual daily struggles, whether we be called to carry the reproach of Christ in evangelism, or whether we be called to give up our jobs and our workplace for the sake of following Christ, we need to know that we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul that we can cling to. And why? So that we will know that in these times it is worth it to cling to Christ. And we, we have this. We have this as a, as a confidence that when we approach Him, we can and will receive grace for help in every trial, 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. Right? He, 
he, he hears us and he knows how to provide for us because he is our sympathetic high priest. And so, and so we can, like Paul in his letter to the Thessalonians, say rejoice always in any trial, any suffering, any temptation, and pray without ceasing so that we will receive mercy and grace in those times of need. And finally, I wanted to end with this. If you, if you recall back in, in verse 14, the author says, the author calls us to hold fast. We are called to hold fast. And there's an emphasis that runs all throughout, this thread that runs all throughout the book of Hebrews on the, the, human, the human side of our security. We know we know that we are held and kept by the grace of God alone, and it is by His grace that we will be kept until the very end. Yet we are called, we are called to cling to Christ as He clings to us. And we do this through, through ordinary means of grace, especially that of prayer, but also through, through regular Bible reading through meditating on the Word of God, through, through preaching to ourselves the Word of God, praying without ceasing. But one of the most, in my opinion, important ways that we, that we see this work out is in the church. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, starting in verse 23, the, and you'll recognize this is very, fairly well parallels to our passage this morning. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, the author, after building up this argument of the sufficiency of Christ, of Christ as our greater and better high priest than anything the old covenant has to offer, than anything the world has to offer, he calls these Jews to gather together as a body to build one another up, to encourage one another. You see, while we are called to pray and we are called to very explicitly live our individual lives putting sin to death and unto the glory of God, we are also called to one another. We have such a grace provided to us that we are able to encourage, live in community, fellowship, and build one another up in our times of need. And this is one of the ways that we see the grace of God worked out in our lives through the church. Grace to help in the time of need often comes from a brother or sister in Christ building us up, encouraging us. And how? By pointing us to our high priest, Jesus Christ. By reminding us when we don't want to remember, when we would rather suffer and wallow in our sin, we have brothers and sisters who will remind us, point us back to Christ and our hope of glory therein. And so we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul in one another. And so we, we cling to this. We do this as often as we can.
living in community with others, stirring up one another. And finally, Jesus Christ is coming back. Could not end a sermon without saying that. We know that our Lord, Jesus Christ, is coming back. And though we, we see Christ publicly portrayed as crucified now, and we, we, we see our Savior now, we will see Him fully and perfectly in the way that, that would be just so wonderful. And so, as this day draws near, as it is, closer today than it was yesterday, we should encourage one another, build one another up, remind one another of our great high priest, of our sympathetic high priest. Stir one another up to love and good deeds. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the, the grace that you've shown us through your Son, our great high priest, who has gone before us and perfectly made atonement for our sins, through whom we have a confidence that our sins are truly forgiven. We know that through Christ, we have His righteousness. And that because of that, we are fellow heirs and sons. And we thank You, Father, that we have not only that, but a sympathetic high priest who, who knows our needs, who has suffered as we have, and who can help us and give us grace in these times of need. Father, I pray that you would put it on our hearts to continuously remember these attributes of Christ, that in these times of need we wouldn't shrink back, but we would remember that we have an advocate, Jesus Christ the Righteous, and that we would draw near to you with confidence and boldness to receive mercy and grace to help. And so, Father, I ask that you would, you would build us up and you would remind us of this daily as we face our, our daily walk as Christians, that Christ is worth it. He's better than anything that the world has to offer. And so we pray all these things in His holy name. Amen.